Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday morning worship time. It really is a privilege to be able to gather on a Sunday morning, to not feel guilty about not going to work, to refresh your body, to refresh your soul and your spirit, and to be fed from the Word of God. So I'm grateful to be here this morning. I was also grateful to be here last evening. If you were here and heard the IGO presentation, it was very encouraging. I hope you youth enjoyed that last night. Uh, this is Youth Sunday, so to all of you youth, this message is somewhat focused at you. Everyone else can listen in. It's not specifically a youth theme, but where you're at in life, this is very much a question you need to be considering as you look ahead. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercies that are new this morning. Your loving kindness, Lord, is far beyond what we deserve, and your grace that you give us, Lord, it's, it's something we can never earn. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Also, Lord, we thank you this morning for the Comforter, the Holy Spirit who will lead us into all truth. And this morning, we trust you to lead us into truth, to show us your way, show us your path. And I pray for our youth group this morning, Lord, as they consider what your word has to say about the course of their life, I pray that you might open their eyes to your truth, and Lord, help us all to respond to whatever you speak to us this morning. We pray this in the worthy name of Jesus, amen. I'd like for you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 1 for an opening text. It's been about 32 years ago, I believe it was in 1990, that my grandfather, Irvin Miller, uh, was sick and he passed away in the month of June, which we're just coming up on. I was recalling that. I was about nine years old when he passed away and he died about three, uh, about three weeks after my birthday. So I just turned nine years old and I still remember uh, sitting in the living room there and he was, he was sick and receiving a birthday present from him that today is still meaningful to me. It was a toy, but I always remember the moment that he gave it. Uh, I was thinking back to what are my, my last memories of him, and I recall going up to Elkhart General Hospital when he was there, and I think it was probably the last time I saw him. I remember very little of it, but I remember going there with my mom and dad. I don't know if all of us children were there, but I just kind of remember the scene in my mind. Uh, remember that I don't believe he was maybe talking much, not sure how aware he was, but the family that was there tried to sing a song. I think it was Amazing Grace, and, and I just remember hearing faltering voices and realizing that this is probably close to the end. And in my young mind, uh, it made an impression on me. Before we left, I still recall my aunt telling me to tell Dottie to tell him farewell. I don't know why that always has stuck with me. I think at the, in the moment, as a nine-year-old, that wasn't a word I was used to using. We don't say farewell. We always say Goodbye. But there was a weight to the meaning of it in the moment. It was, it was goodbye, well, not for good, because in eternity we reunite, but it was goodbye on this earth is what she was trying to say. And I thought about the last moments of a person's life, the significance of what did they say in those final moments? Uh, what were the last words? And, and really what happens in those moments if a person is of their right mind, it seems like Everything in life kind of boils down to the most, like, what really mattered at the last? What did a person want to say that they felt was so important that it should be said at the last? And if you read the Gospels, almost half of, the, of what's in the Gospels comes from the last week of Jesus' life. And even probably a greater percentage is of, about the last day of his life, uh, the crucifixion and then the, the, the few days after with the resurrection. So, so much of the Gospels is on the last part of Jesus' life. I think that's significant. Not that everything else Jesus did prior to that wasn't important, but there's a weight to a person's last words. And what we're going to be looking at this morning are some of the last words of Jesus. And how do those give direction and focus to our lives? For each of you as youth, some of you are still in school, some of you have just graduated, some of you have been out of school for a couple of years, and you're, you're setting a course for your life. And as you do that, there's so many 
options in our day-to-day. You have a lot of options today. I don't know if you're aware of that. You have options of, of employment. You can almost choose any job you want, and if you work hard, they'll probably hire you and keep you on, and, and, you'll, and you'll do well. Uh, you're not destined to end up in a coal mine or something like that. There's a lot of opportunity. There's also options for training. We have multiple Bible schools. We have places to go serve, voluntary service. You have options. You have a lot of options. So how do you process what do you do in life? Where do you go next in life? Let's start reading in Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. It says this, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. By the way, this was written by Luke. So the former treatise, he refers back to his gospel that he wrote, I believe is what he's saying. His witness of what Jesus did on this earth. Verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And I'm going to pause briefly because Luke gives just a bit of a proof of what Jesus did after he rose from the dead. He lets us know that he was seen over a period of 40 days. And if I understand it, it's not here, but I believe up to 500 people saw Jesus post-resurrection. So there was, there was many eyewitnesses to prove that truly he had risen from the dead. This was not some fable. And then it says that he spoke to them things of the kingdom of God. Now think again about a person's last words. And as Jesus has now accomplished the work that his father sent him to do, he gave his life, he rose from the dead, and now he's just a few days left. He's preparing to go back to his father. And he's speaking to the people about the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice this next verse. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a little bit. He has invested heavily in the lives of specifically his 12 disciples. One of them betrayed him and is now dead, Judas, so the 11. And then up to these other hundreds of people that had followed him. And Jesus is about to leave this earth He taught about the kingdom of God. He tried to train them in what they should do. And he's ready to go back to his father. And they ask the question, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is that what Jesus came to do? Had he come for a national movement of restoring the kingdom back to Israel? And I read this differently for the first time as I was studying this. I realized, now this isn't a surprise to Jesus. Jesus anticipates everything that was coming. But if you're about to entrust this new faith, this new covenant, to a a, a small group, we know Jesus ministered to multitudes, but he focused his ministry on a small group, and he's about to leave and let them take it on. And they're asking the question, okay, so now we're here now, so when's the kingdom going to, is the kingdom going to be restored? I wonder what Jesus thought about that. Well, here's how he answered it. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his power. So Jesus doesn't directly tell them the answer to their question, but he says it's not for you to know. What God is doing in the world is not really your business. But then he gives them what their business is. He says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. 
I don't know how many minutes or moments Jesus went after he said this. It makes it sound here as if he spoke the word and then he was taken. So I don't know. That's how the scripture records it. But in his final moments, he tells them, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons, but he says, ye shall receive power. And he told them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But he says, you will receive power and ye shall be witnesses. Some of Jesus' last words were, I'm going to give you power, but the power is that you are going to be witnesses of me, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and at the uttermost part of the earth. Youth, is this command still true today? Was this simply for the apostles and those around him, or does this command apply to us today? I think we know the answer. Ye shall receive power, ye shall be witnesses. He also said, we, uh, it's recorded, we call it the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, this was also some of his last words. I'm not sure when he spoke these for sure. I didn't, I didn't look into that. We know the Great Commission. We often start on verse 19 where it says, Go ye therefore. But the verse before that is significant. Verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, did you catch that? All power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus, by conquering death and sin, was given all power. He was given all power by his Father on heaven and in earth. And then he had told us, he just told us in Acts, that ye shall receive power. All right? So it is his to give. He takes his power and he gives it to us to do his work. And then here in the Great Commission, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Some translations will say, Make disciples of all nations. We teach but we are discipling, which is more than just telling. Discipling is walking with people. It's instructing. It's showing them the way. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So several things are here. Jesus says, I will give you power. You are to be my witnesses. But even the best part of this whole thing is he says, I will be with you. His mandate for you and I, young people, to go into the world, to go into our communities, to spread the gospel, does not come without promises. You're not intended to go on your own ingenuity and somehow make this work, all right? The gospel is the good news. We are the messengers. We are to spread the gospel, but the power is not our own. The power comes from God. And how does he give us that power? He gives it to us through the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to give grace here for whoever asked the question here in, in Acts when they said, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom to Israel? The Holy Spirit had not yet come. When the Holy Spirit comes, they were moved with power. They began to testify of Jesus. Suddenly, it became very clear. So I'm, whoever asked the question, it was an honest question. They still didn't see the fullness of God's purpose. But he says, power, you will receive power, but it's because he gives us the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that transforms and sustains the disciple of Christ. It's the Spirit of God. So you can't do this work on your own. As you think about what does a life of living for God look like, as, a, as you think about how do I fulfill the Great Commission in my own, in my own life, now, I don't know how you process it as a young person. I remember when I was younger, and when, I, when I'd hear the Great Commission, and you know, we're supposed to go into all the world, there's something about the command that seems daunting. How are we ever going to get the job done? How can just a few people spread the gospel into the whole earth without some kind of mass movement, some, some big revival? So think about that. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. How do we actually make a difference? In, in, our, in our world today. Well, I already told you, he gave us the Holy Spirit. That's where the sustaining power comes from. A couple scriptures here. John chapter 4, verse 14 says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. A well of water. I like the description here in John as well. John 7, uh, 38 and 39. Remember, this is a descriptive these are descriptive verses of what it's like to have the Holy Spirit living in you. 
it's like a well of water. It boils up. The next verse is there. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So when Jesus promised this, it hadn't happened yet. But now we know what it's like. The Holy Spirit comes and he says, that is, that is the sustaining power that helps you live. That is what we live out of. That's where the strength comes from to be faithful to God. It's also where the energy and where um, the wherewithal comes from to be able to be his witnesses, to be able to speak for him. It's also his work. God cares more about the Great Commission than even we do. Did you ever think about that? The command is for us, but who cares about it the most that his name gets spread throughout the whole earth? He does. So he not only gives us that power, but the Holy Spirit is also the initiating power in the lives of other people. Think about someone in your life that you know that is not following God. And sometimes you, when you think about them, maybe you pray for them, you, you think of all these barriers to them coming to God or, or to them being faithful. It just seems like their life's a mess. Maybe they've made bad decisions. And how do you undo such a mess? And in our own minds, we see barriers to the gospel coming to fruition in their life. But that's not a barrier to the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work. We have a role, but let's not forget that the power comes from the Holy Spirit. I want to show you a few scriptures to, uh, to emphasize that. Where does the enabling power come from? It's from the Holy Spirit. I have a couple verses here, and we put mics up in the front. And I'm just going to pass these mics down. I'm going to have you uh, take turns reading scriptures here. So maybe we'll go down. I'll just start at the end here. And as I give you references, I'd like for you to read them out loud. Jerry. Think about this theme here. The enabling power. So there, there's two aspects I'd like to look at in, in the Holy Spirit this morning. The one is the enabling power. That is the power... Uh, of being able to not only to be a witness, but the power that works in other people's lives, the Holy Spirit preparing them. But then there's also a power that he works within us, the, that abiding presence that he promises us. So I want to speak about those two aspects of the Holy Spirit. So God has not left us without tools. He has not left us without a way to fulfill the Great Commission. The question you need to consider this morning, are you willing to be obedient to that call? Jesus didn't make it optional. He says, ye shall be witnesses. So think about that. Whatever age you are this morning, whether you're youth or whether you're older, what does that mean in your life today? You shall be witnesses of me. And this shall spread throughout the whole earth. All right, a couple scriptures here. First point I'd like to make is that enabling power, he will give, uh, he will give them utterance to speak. And the them means uh, the disciples. Brennan, would you look up Matthew 10, 19, and 20? And across here, uh, Mark 13, 11. I'll have the references up here too. And then Luke 12, 12 would be next. be Hannah then. So if you'd look up that verse, I'd like for you to read that to us and tell us what, is it, what does the Holy Spirit do here? How do, we, how do we see that in the scriptures? Go ahead and read that when you're ready. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. It is not you that speak. It is the Holy Spirit within you. Think about how, have you ever had fear about sharing your faith with someone? Is there ever a little bit of fear? Like, oh, I don't like initiating conversations. He says, don't, don't be afraid of it. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that speaks through you. That's a promise. Now let's do the next one, Mark 13, 11. But when, but when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither Neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour that speak ye. For it, is not what, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. It's not ye that speak, it's the Holy Ghost. And I read the next one. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. That's a, that's a tremendous promise. That's the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. He asks us to be obedient, and he says, I will give you. Don't, don't worry about what you're going to say. Now, I don't believe that's a careless statement. I don't, mean, I don't think that, believe, that, that means that just never read your Bible because it'll all work out when it's time to, to come and, and share your faith. No, but don't be afraid. Don't let that cripple you and say, well, I don't, 
I've never done this, or I don't know what all, you know, how do you lay this out in a way that makes sense? It is, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. He says he will speak. He's just looking for someone to be faithful. One thing I wanted to point out to all of us, the, the group of people that Jesus chose, those 12 disciples, they were common men. And in Acts, it talks about that's, people took note because they were common men, but they spoke with such power and with such conviction. So you don't have to have a degree to be able to share your faith. You don't have to be fully educated, but God is looking for people who are faithful and who step out and are obedient, and then it says the Holy Spirit, he speaks. That's encouraging to me. Number two, what's another, what's another part of this enabling power? Uh, I'm not sure who's next in line. Kirk, I believe. John 16, verse 8. Point number two says he would convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. I already told you, sometimes we see people that need the gospel, and it seems like there are barriers to that. How are they ever going to receive that? Go ahead and read John 16, verse 8. And when he has come, he will re- reprove the world of sin and, and of righteousness and of judgment. All right, it says when he has come, talking about when the Holy Ghost has come, he will reprove or he will convict. Conviction of sin is not our job. All right, we don't have to necessarily pour it on so heavy when we're sharing with somebody or when we're influencing someone with the gospel that somehow the, our power or our convincing will bring conviction. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is looking for people who are faithful to speak and to be disciple makers, but he's the one who does the work. What's the next one here? Number three, uh, next person in line, look up Mark twelve thirty six, and over here, John 16, verse 14. What is another part of this enabling power of the Holy Spirit to be able to be witnesses? It says, he would give illumination of truth that men might know the Lord. All right, let's have the next one. Go ahead. Mark 12, 36. For David himself said, By the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, that I make thine enemies thy footstool. All right, this is a quote going back to David. It said, David himself said by the Holy Ghost. David could never have known what the future held. He could have never known that this truth he was talking about was a future reality. It says it was by the Holy Ghost. It's the Holy Ghost that brings illumination of truth. What about the next one? John 16, verse 14. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All right, I love this verse. It's it's saying several things here. He shall glorify me. One thing I want us all to remember, youth, the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, he always glorifies the Son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. When you see a movement, any kind of movement in Christianity where there is an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit, where there's things that are going on that draw attention to the Holy Spirit, that is not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit draws attention to the Son, and it says He shows us things through that. He shall glorify, so He glorifies me, which is Jesus, for He shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So the Holy Spirit gives glory to Jesus, speaks of Him, but He reveals truth to us. That's That's how we understand truth the Holy Spirit. So that's where illumination of truth comes. So again, another encouragement, we speak truth to those to whom we witness, but it's the Holy Spirit who who illuminates that in their hearts. He brings understanding. He's just looking for us to be faithful. You don't have to do the work of illumination. The Holy Spirit is faithful. I'm encouraged by that. We have been given, God's looking for young people. He's looking for older people. He's looking for all of us to be faithful to that call and then he gives the power. He gives that enabling power. And then the fourth one here, John 14, verse 12. I'm not sure where we're at in order here. I think over here. The enabling power says he would give power to do the very works of the Lord. Let's look at John 14, verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. All right, all the great works that Jesus did while he was here on this earth, they were amazing. But he, even Jesus says, greater works will be done after he's, after he's gone. Jesus had to go back to his Father. I'm sure for those who were close to Jesus, they really enjoyed being in his presence. But that was a limited few. And in fact, even, even among the 12, Jesus seemed to show some preference to, to three of those disciples where he really had them in, their, in some of those intimate moments of his life. 
So for those who are close to Jesus, I'm sure they really hated to see him go. But he says, I have to go so that the Father can send you a comforter, and he's going to lead all of us into truth. He's going to be that ever-abiding presence in our hearts, in our lives, where Jesus, here as, Jesus was here as God. He was in the flesh, but he did have the fleshly limitations. He couldn't be with all people at all times. So he had to go, and then he says, as a result, greater works will be done because the Holy Spirit is now able to move in the, in the lives of many individuals. And he returned unto his Father. <clears throat> in this light, with what the Holy Spirit does, evangelism should never be interpreted as a human undertaking. It does take creativity. It takes planning. We have programs. We have missions. We do a lot of these things. But ultimately, we have to realize that that. Fulfilling the Great Commission, it's not a human undertaking. This is a divine project. God has been, has been proclaiming his name to the nations ever since the beginning of time. He's always been looking for a people. That was the role of the children of Israel. They were to be his, a demonstration of God to the nations. But for us as Christians, that, that has been carried on to us now. We are to be his representatives to the world. But it is not simply a human undertaking. All the disciples were asked to do was let the Spirit be in control of their lives, submit themselves to God's Spirit, and He starts to do the work. What about this abiding presence of the Holy Spirit? So we already talked a little bit about what the Holy Spirit does in illuminating truth to others. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the one who prepares the soil for those who are going to receive the Word of God. We are His messengers. But what about, what does it mean to you as a Christian to have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your own life. Uh, What does that accomplish in your own life? How do we see that as as a blessing for us personally? I have a couple more uh, scriptures here if you want to keep passing the mic. The abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Number one, John 16, verse 13. Let me look that up. I think we're over here. John 16, verse 13. Jesus said that he would guide them into all truth. Go ahead and read that. How bet when he, the spirit, is tr- spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whosoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. All right, he will show you things to come. I'm going to bring up the next point, which is the same passage. He would guide them into all truth. He would show them things to come. So we, uh, we just read that in that verse. He will guide us into all truth. And there, there it specifically says he would not speak of himself. The Holy Spirit would not be speaking of himself, but that which comes from, from Jesus. And he will show you things to come. We can have the confidence, if you are born again, if the Spirit of God is within you, if you're living in obedience to God's Spirit, to the Word of God, then you can have the assurance that his Spirit lives in you. And then he says he's going to show you. He's going to show you the way to go. He's going to guide you. Number three here, uh, John 14, 26. I think we're on this side. John 14, 26. He would teach them what they needed to know. He would teach them what they needed to know. Go ahead and read John 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. All right, so he teaches us all things. And to, to the disciples, he, the disciples had received a lot of teaching from Jesus. And I'm sure probably at times you, they probably almost forgot, like, what did Jesus say about that? But he says the, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit was going to bring those things to their remembrance. It would bring those things back. And they were like, oh, yes, I remember when Jesus said that. But he would teach them. He would teach them truth where it made sense to them. And they would be able to, uh, to, uh, to obey that truth. Next one here, number four says that he would help them pray. John 14, 12, and 13. Uh, I think we're over here again. John 14, 12, and 13, and John 16, 23, and 24 over here. Is prayer difficult for you? Did you know the Holy Spirit helps you pray? Let's have that first one, John 14. Yeah, I lost track of which side we're on here. Verily, there verily, go. I say unto you, he that hath believed on me, 
the works that I do shall he do. Also, the greater works than these shall he do. The, because I go unto my Father, and what whatsoever shall ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. All right. So there he specifically says, whatever we ask in his name. So when we pray, we ask it in the name of Jesus, and he says, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified. So what we pray for should be bringing glory to the Father. What's the next verse on this? And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. I'm assuming that prior to this, they were not praying specifically in the name of Jesus. Jesus tells them specifically, pray in my name. Jesus is the advocate. He is the intercessor. He's the intermediate between us and the Father. He says, pray in my name. So when we come to God, we pray in the name of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit uh, enables us. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about the, the Spirit with groanings that cannot be uttered, prays on our behalf. So he helps us uh, in times when we don't know how to pray. And then the last one here, we're not going to look this up. We already read this one earlier. He would glorify the Son by revealing to his followers the things of Christ. Uh, we read this verse earlier. It says, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So the Holy Spirit will glorify the Son. Now I want to make one, one observation about this. If the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son, then if the Holy Spirit lives within us, He will want to glorify the Son through us, right? So we're going to talk just briefly here about fruit yet. But it is inevitable if God's Spirit is living inside of you, if we have not quenched His Spirit, if His Spirit is living inside of you and the role of the Spirit is to draw us to, to Christ, then it's going to have to come out. It's going to be like it talked about in John. Uh, rivers of living water will spill out. So think about that. If you have no desire to share what God is doing in your life, what does that say? If there's no desire, if there's no passion for Christ and the work He's doing in you, if God's Spirit is there, it, He wants to make that known. Do we quench that somehow? Because the Spirit is also a gentleman. He does not force Himself upon us. So it is only as we are living in freedom, as we live in obedience to the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit, He wants to make it known, and it's going to come out. We're going to want to be His witnesses. We're not going to see witnessing or the Great Commission as a project. I remember that feeling. It kind of felt to me that way when I was, when I was younger. I kind of felt like, like evangelism is a project. It's something that's expected of Christians to do. You've got to be part of evangelism somewhere. Well, sometimes we make specific choices to be part of that. We made a specific choice to go on the mission field for a couple years, and that was fine. But just because you make that kind of a decision doesn't necessarily mean that it's happening and that it's coming out of, out of a life of, of being led by the Holy Spirit. So it's not a project. It's a result of God's presence within us. It's, it's the fruit of that in us. The Spirit of God always insists on making Christ known. So as you think about how does this work in your daily living, remember this. You may see your life and say, I want to make a difference for Christ. I want to be I want to be doing something for him. But just remember, no matter what you're involved in in life, no matter where God calls you, it's not you that makes the difference, it's him. He calls us to be faithful, but he's the one that does the work. That, there's a tremendous peace and joy in knowing that I don't have to worry about results. I just have to be faithful. God takes care of the results. But it is important to consider uh, what it is that we are, we are witnessing of. We cannot give something away that we don't possess ourselves. Does that make sense? We can't talk about hope if we have no hope. We can't talk about faith if we have no faith. So it's important that what, that what we are speaking of and what we are witnessing to of Christ is real in our own lives. I'd like to show you something here. How many of you know what this is? Oh, Shakira knows. You're not close enough. This multicolored stuff here. 
You guys know what this is? Seeds? What kind of seeds? Do you ever see red seeds like that or green seeds like that? In fact, there's some purple seeds in there. Anybody want to guess what kind of seeds these are? You've never seen purple plants and red plants. This is just corn. That's all it is. It's colored because it has treatment on it. So we see cornfields and they're green, right? So this isn't going to make red corn. It's not going to make purple corn. Uh, the colors simply mean something to a farmer. I have several bags of seed here. We just finished planting this past week. And um, we had about two weeks, a nice couple of weeks to get it all done. Let me just lay these up here so you can see these. I was thinking about seeds, and I thought about the Great Commission. And we think about the massive need of the world. And we, last night, as, as we were looking at some of those videos and pictures from IGO of Asia, I always think of the vastness of Asia and the Middle East and just how on earth does God's word get spread throughout the whole earth? Doesn't it have to be some kind of a big event? And yet you can't help but read the Gospels and see Jesus being so focused on only a few. He spent so much time. He didn't ignore the multitudes, but he often stepped away. And in those three years, he walked with these disciples in a very intentional way. Um, if you look at the first, about the first year of, of calling the disciples, they're just with him. They're walking with him. They're observing him. He's not really giving them any responsibilities but he is intentionally preparing them to do a work. Now, we go read the book of Acts, and we start to see the explosion of the early church. But that's not where Jesus went. He went with a few. And I want to describe to you something called exponential growth. All right? When we talk about raising corn, we often talk about yield potential. How much can one seed yield? And so I want to help you process this a little bit. So I have a visual here for you. Now here, several things going on. First of all, there's the, there's the finished product, an ear of corn. But over here in the bottom is just a single seed. Now these are colored seeds because they're treated. But a single seed. And then this picture up here, that is seed boxes. All right? So I want to give you an idea of, of how much can a seed grow. So in those boxes... You know, they still make seed in bags, but anymore, a lot of farmers, they get them in boxes because it's just easier to handle. But I want, the reason I showed you pictures, I want you to see the scale of it. You see that forklift? He's got one of those boxes, all right? He's going to put four on that trailer. In the last two weeks, uh, with the planter I was running, I think I planted about, about five of those boxes. We'll say, yeah, I think I had five, five of those boxes. So how many seeds do you think is in a box like that? I didn't do a count like on this bag, but there's, there's a lot of seeds in here. So how, how much can a seed grow? Well, each of those boxes, uh, when, we, when we talk about seed, we, we say how many units are in a box. So one of those boxes might hold 50 units. It would be like 50 seed bags. Those of you that still carry seed bags around, it's about 50 of those. Every unit is 80,000 seeds, all right? So 80,000 seeds per unit. So if there's 50 of those, 80,000 seed units. Every one of those boxes holds about 4 million seeds, okay? So 4 million seeds. So if I planted about five of those in, a little, in about two weeks, that was 20 million seeds. So that's just to give you a little bit of a reference. Each one of these seeds went in the ground. So 20 million seeds. We plant those, you know, so much an acre, about 32,000 an acre. And so it's divided up over, over a lot of land. But several observations I want to make about seed. First of all, all the seed that stays in the shed is guaranteed to yield zero, right? The seed that is not planted bears no fruit. That's, that's, that's a given. Uh, some of our seed, this might have even been from last year. I found some in the shed. It's been there all year, and you know what? There is no fruit. There is absolutely no fruit. It's just there. It's not being put to use. There has, there's zero, that, poten that yield potential is zero. So first step we have is let's get the seed in the ground. So we placed all those seeds in the ground, now, now, raising corn is, there's a lot, corn needs a lot of nutrients. And so, of course, you can't just put the seed in the ground and, and all is good. We had to add nitrogen. There's a lot of nutrients. And so a lot of things get added. But at a basic level, you've got to put the seed in the ground. It has to start there. 
So I was thinking, how much can one, what can one seed do? How much can it replicate itself? Let's assume we have a very good growing season, and every one of those 20 million seeds be, produces a plant. So you have 20 million plants in the field. Each of those plants will bear one ear of corn. Now, there's differing estimates on how many kernels are on an ear, but let's just say for the purpose of figuring here that every one of those ears, uh, if you would count the rows around it, let's say each of those would have 16 rows, and you'd count every kernel in that row, and there'd be about 40 per row. So if you do the math, that would put about 640 kernels of corn on one ear. Now, as I figure it, that means this one seed has the potential to replicate itself at a rate of 64,000%. Now, you're going to check my math later because you don't believe it. 64,000% from one seed. So if those five boxes, those 20 million seeds, all reproduce at that rate, how much is it going to grow? Well, I figured that that's going to produce 12 billion kernels of seed, 12 billion, 800 million kernels of corn. Some figures are, how do you figure how much of that is in a bushel? Because we talk about bushels when we farm. How much did it yield? Well, so many bushels. Well, each of those bushels is about 90,000 kernels of corn. So these 12 billion, you start dividing them up into bushels. How many bushels would that be? Well, here's another visual for you. So there's the pile of corn on the left, and there's a truck on the right. Each of those truck loads, we could say, averages about 1,000 bushels per load. So those five plastic boxes I showed you, that fit almost all on one little trailer. How many loads do you think that'll produce if they all have about 640 um, kernels each? Well, as I did the, the math, that would be, now in a perfect environment, obviously this is a hypothetical, but there would be about 140 of those semi-loads coming off of those five boxes of seed. That's a growth rate of about 64,000%. I'm always amazed in the fall when you, when you go to harvest because, you know, we go in the field and just plant a little bit of seed, and then it just, it just creates a lot you have to, to carry away. Now, a corn seed is, that's a pretty big yield. What if, what if any plant would just replicate itself by 100% or two, let's say 200%? For every seed, you get two. I, I, what I want you to realize is when we look at the world and we look at the, the scope of the need, there can be several responses. One of those can be is, oh, it's just, it's hopeless. We'll never get it all done, and so we do nothing. So we just leave the seed in the shed. You know, there's just, there's no way to accomplish the Great Commission. In fact, I hardly think about the Great Commission. I hardly think about Jesus' last words. I've got a life to live. I'm busy. And so we can say, well, the seed just, it stays in the, sh in the shed. We guarantee zero. We will not reproduce ourselves as Christians. We will not be bringing new people into the faith. Or we can look at the growth of a seed, and say, what if I invest at least, let's at least put it in the ground. Now, we're not all going to have the same yield potential. We may all have, God's given us all different gifts. He's given us different abilities, but at least we plant the seed. And what if we would look at that and say, God, what if, what if my sphere where you've placed me in life, I'll, I'll just be faithful right here, just like Jesus did with his disciples. Because as you look at the model of Jesus, there's a great little book I would recommend you youth to read sometime. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Jesus was very intentional with the way that he discipled his followers. And he spent time with them. He didn't unload everything at one time. He didn't say, all right, fellas, we're going to have a crash course on Christianity. Here you go. And dump the whole thing on them. He started by teaching them some things. Sometimes they would ask questions. Master, what do you mean? What did this parable mean? And sometimes he would explain the parables later. And then disputes would arise, and then he would kind of talk to them about, what are you guys talking about here? And rebuke them a bit. And progressively, as they became more and more mature, he says, he sent them out. He sent them out two by two. He sent them out, he sent out the 70. He started to do those things. He gave them little projects, and he, he instructed them. But Jesus looked at it in a very basic way and said, I'm going to prepare a few that will yield much fruit. Does that make sense? What can you do in your life at this stage? You might feel like you don't have a lot of influence yet, but let me, let me just challenge you. What if every one of you, young people, if you believe that, that Jesus meant that we should be witnesses for him, 
that our job is to fulfill the Great Commission so that all the world would know. Rather than worrying about the results of the whole world, what about right now? What about one person? Think about the people you know. Is there one person that you know that you know they're not right with God right now? That one person that maybe God puts into your mind and you start to think, how would Jesus handle this relationship? How could I start to just invest in them? And it has to be done in a very patient way. I think the problem we have and the problem I have sometimes is I want to see big, I want to see all the ears. I want to see the pile of corn. Let's not worry about this small, you know, little bit of seed stuff. Let's, let's look at results. You know, let's get, let's get the semi-loads. We got to get these people into the kingdom. And, and those, those movements have happened in history. There have been great revivalist movements. But what about the follow-up? Who disciples these people? I think Jesus was very intentional about making sure that his disciples were ready. And I told you at the beginning in Acts, remember they asked that question right before he goes, well, when are you going to restore the kingdom? And you could have, you know, Jesus could have almost thought, I tried to prepare these guys and they're still thinking earthly kingdom. But he didn't. He had one more time pointed them, says, you wait for the Holy Spirit, he will give you power, and then you be witnesses. You go do it. And when the Holy Spirit came, it changed everything. Because they were obedient, they had a, they had a vision for what, what he wanted them to do, and they were faithful. And then God started to do a mighty work. I'm not going to tell you this morning that if you're faithful that you're going to see results like the book of Acts. You may not have thousands coming to faith, but I guarantee you, if you invest in the life of at least one person, you're going to do more than just doing nothing and just leaving your, your talent buried, like we read the parable, or like leaving the seed in the shed. So I want to challenge you young people this morning to be encouraged about your life calling. Some of you may be called to go somewhere. That would be great. But even if you don't go anywhere, even if you don't move away, the Great Commission applies to everyone at all times, in all places. We are called to be his witnesses no matter where we're at. The scripture says about this idea of death, it's such a paradox. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat or a grain of wheat, or we could say just a grain, a kernel of corn, unless it falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. That is a paradox of the Christian life. He says, unless it dies, it is alone. You will not produce disciples unless you die. What does that mean? It means dying to myself so that the Spirit of God can have free course in my life. If I'm not dead to myself, I will abide. The seed will abide alone. It will not reproduce. But if we die to ourselves, and we, we, like the disciples, we say, Lord, I'm yours. We have an open heart and open life. We repent when necessary. We let the Holy, we're obedient to God's word. We're obedient personally in our lives. And God's spirit is there. He starts to do that work. That multiplication starts to happen. And I, I have confidence we don't have to worry about results. We don't keep a scorecard in this life. God knows very well the influence you've had. He knows very well the people that you are reaching out to and, and, and the work that he's doing in their hearts. Our job is, are we being faithful? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to have, have us completely? Are we willing to die to ourselves so that his life can be reproduced not only in us, but then it flows out and it starts to make the people around us uh, be affected? So where do you begin as a youth? Start right where you're at. If God laid somebody on your heart this morning that you know needs to know the Lord, you start there. Pray about it. Ask God to show you, Lord, where do you want me? I know you've placed me here to do your work. Now where is it and who is it? Start to ask God to show you that, and I believe he wants to. But in the meantime, there's many things we can do to prepare ourselves for a life like this. We had a great presentation on IGO last night may not be for everybody, but it's a great opportunity. Uh, receive training. Go to Bible school. Ask questions. Uh, improve skills. Uh, work on relationships. If you find it difficult to talk to someone about your... Then just go practice, go practice conversation with somebody. Maybe the first time you're not going to share your faith. Start to get comfortable with talking to people because it takes speech for us to be able to actually communicate God's truth. It doesn't happen by osmosis. We have to speak at times when God prompts us to speak. And one more challenge I want to leave you with. 
if you want to see God's plan for this, then read the Gospels. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and as you read, ask yourself some questions. Where did Jesus spend his time? How did Jesus interact with people? What was Jesus' primary concerns during his time on this earth? And start to ask those questions because Jesus is the master, and he is the one who is the best model in teaching us how to accomplish the work that he gave us to do. Let's bow our heads. Father, I believe this morning that you intended every one of your children, all of us as believers, to be your witnesses here on this earth. Lord, I believe that you have a vision that is so far beyond what we can even comprehend. And you have a care for people even way beyond we do. And yet you've given us the responsibility to go and to spread the gospel and to be your witnesses. Lord, I pray this morning, especially for our youth, as they are young, as they think about their futures, as they consider how to prepare themselves for life, and even maybe more importantly, Lord, as they consider the path that they're going to go on. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would fill each of them with a vision for obeying your last words of being witnesses for you, no matter where you call them. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up a generation here at Sandy Ridge that would be passionate about their relationship with God, and Lord, that through the empowering and enabling of the Holy Spirit, there would be rivers of living water flowing from each of them. Lord, for us as well as older ones, maybe we've become satisfied sitting on the bench. Maybe we're busy. Maybe we don't even think about what you want us to be doing. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would prompt us this morning, would stir that fire, stir a vision in us, Lord, and help us ask the question of you and to ask you sincerely, Lord, what would you want me to do? Who do you want me to reach out to? I just pray, Lord, that we would be a faithful light and a witness in this community where you've placed us. Help us always, Lord, to have a sense of where you want us to go and what you want us to do. Thank you again for your truth. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.